Matthew 27, page 1421 in the church Bibles here. Our text is from verses 57 to 66. Matthew 27, 57 to 66. We're going to read the passage and then pray and see what the Holy Spirit has to speak to us through this text. Beginning in verse 57. As evening approached, there, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself uh, become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, you will help us to see the significance of uh, your burial. Help us to understand clearly why you have recorded even this particular detail and may the truths you teach us change us so that we could live in conformity to your will even more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in our study through this gospel, we're now coming to the last section in chapter 27. If I'm not mistaken, chapter 27 is the second longest chapter in uh, Matthew. And in here, uh, we come to the events related to the burial of our Lord. We have only one more chapter left in Matthew, and that's uh, the last chapter, chapter 28, that deals with the glorious resurrection of our Lord and uh, his ascension back into heaven. But for today, the focus is strictly on his burial. I'm sure you're familiar with the words of the Apostle Paul, if you've been a Christian even for a short amount of time. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 3 and 4, he talks about what is the gospel. Uh, he says, for I, what I've received, I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the good news in a nutshell is, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But we as Christians often talk a lot about his death and about his resurrection, and for good reasons. But we don't talk much about his burial. Think about it. We talk about the death, he died for our sins. He rose again to show that he was justified. But we kind of pass over this burial but all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about the burial. And Paul, again in First Corinthians, talks about that. Now, I understand that the, the, the burial record 
is to signify that Jesus did die. It was a it was an actual death, and burial indicates uh, that he actually died. But I think there's a little more to it, not just the fact that Christ did die on the cross and was buried before he could be raised. As I was reflecting on this for 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 a few days, I knew this was coming. Um, reflecting, I learned three truths of the significance of the burial record, and that's what I intend to share with all of you. Uh, because all gospel stress, and Paul includes this as one of the core components of the fundamental, the basic good news gospel message. So that's what I want to share with you today. Three truths. I'm going to give you three truths that concerns the burial of our Lord up front, and then we're going to work our way through each of them. Number one, the burial of our Lord fulfilled yet another Old Testament prophecy showing God was sovereign even over the burial of his son. We talk about God's sovereignty when it relates to Jesus' death and his resurrection. But God clearly predicted those things, but even the burial record is something that the Father had prophesied. Why? Again, to remind us, everything is going according to his plan. He is sovereign. Second, the burial of our Lord moved even complacent and fearful believers to now commit themselves more openly to Jesus. Those who are afraid, secret disciples, as they see Jesus' death, his suffering, and as it's time to bury him, they're no longer in the shadows. They're coming out in the open. That's the second truth I want us to see. And the third one is, it's a sad truth, but unfortunately it is true. The burial of our Lord moved those who were settled in their rejection of Jesus to continue going down that path. I hope none of us here, as far away from Jesus, is in that category. Those who were settled in the rejection before even his death didn't move them. Sadly, they continued to remain in that condition. So that's how I structure today's messages around these three truths. Look at truth number one. The burial of our Lord fulfilled yet another Old Testament prophecy showing God was in control even over the burial of his son. Even though it may appear so far from Friday uh, or from Thursday night on to now that evil had won. Appeared that way. The enemies have won. They got Jesus arrested. They got Jesus uh, sentenced to death. They got Jesus killed. Seems like Satan and his troops won the day. But yet, the Father teaches us through this burial record that he was sovereign even over this particular act. Look at verses 57 and 58. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Now Romans didn't typically care to bury a crucified person right away. Why? They wanted the body to rot on the cross so animals can come and even eat off that flesh and that way they'll communicate the message. This is what happens 
when you go against Rome. They wanted people to get that powerful, vivid picture. But Jews, on the other hand, Deuteronomy 21-23, God commanded, anyone who is hung on a cross, the body cannot remain overnight. So Jews did care about not leaving the body on the cross. So, Rome, even though they didn't care about any uh, scriptures, just to keep the peace with the Jewish people, would allow them, when a Jew was crucified, to get the body off the cross the same day. If they didn't die, they would break the knees. So, when you break the knees, you cannot get up on the cross to inhale. So you will basically die by choking. So Pilate would have agreed. Okay, when these guys are dead, these three, take them and bury them. But, out of nowhere, we see this man by the name Joseph. We're known a little bit uh, from where he comes from, a place called Arimathea. Other than that, we really don't know much here we're given the record he was a rich man and he had become a disciple of Jesus that's important only now we're exposed to this man Mark tells us in Mark 15 verse 43 that he was also a member of the Sanhedrin the same Jewish council that put Jesus to death okay so keep that in mind keep that in mind and Mark also tells us that Pilate as he went and asked Pilate for the body Pilate made sure that these people are dead and then he gives the body to Joseph. It must have shocked Joseph. The very same Sanhedrin which was screaming for his blood. And one of the members coming and asking for Jesus' body. But either way, he gave the body to Pilate. And the verse 58 says, Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Then notice what happens. Verse 59 and 60, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own, to own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. See, burying a body involved a lot of work. You had to wash the body, wrap it several times with strips of linen cloth, so wrap it tightly over and over again in a separate face cloth to cover the face as well. Spices would be added to suppress the stench that would come from the dead body. Obviously, Joseph could not have done this alone. So guess what? John 19, verse 39 tells us that uh, Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus in John 3, he comes at night to ask Jesus what's in his heart. And even though the question was unrelated, Jesus knew what was in his heart. And he explains about that fantastic truths about the new birth. So Nicodemus... Uh, John tells us brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds. So this, the body would be heavy. So Nicodemus had, uh, came to help Joseph as well and John also later tells us Joseph's family tomb was nearby so they could bury Jesus right away. It was important because next day is Passover, the evening, actually the evening starts the Passover. So they cannot do any work so they had to get everything done right away. God is providentially organizing, orchestrating all these things. And tombs, basically, is not like how we think. It was basically like a cave cut out of a rock. So there would usually be enough space for when a family buys, think like a lot, think a cave, a big cave. Many of the family members could be buried, not just one. So Joseph is a rich man. 
He bought one for himself and his family members. John also tells us that no other body was laid there yet. So this is a brand new tomb that was provided for Jesus' body to lay. Now, we may look at all this and say, okay, what is the big deal? Here was a disciple. Maybe he happened to be there. He is rich and his heart was moved and he did this. What's the big thing about it? The big thing about this is this. In Isaiah 53, God predicts about Jesus' burial. So keep your finger in Matthew. Isaiah 53, page 1054. Page 1054. If you are familiar with Isaiah 53, you know this is the passage that predicts about the Messiah, his rejection, his suffering, his death for our sins, and also his resurrection. But tucked in it is also a passing reference to the burial. If you're not familiar with Isaiah 53, please get familiar with Isaiah 53. Extremely important. After saying in verse 8 that he was taken away, it was a false judgment, he was cut off, referring to he died. And then look at verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. It would be better translated as assigned a grave with the wicked, but ended up being with the rich in his death. And with the rich in his death, death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. In other words, Rome didn't care where he would be buried. He's among the wicked. The other two, left and right, are criminals. Just bury him. There was an open place outside Jerusalem. It was a mass grave. That's where Rome would typically dispose of the bodies. But here, God has predicted the Messiah will be assigned, because I was assigned a grave with the rich. Humans may have their own wicked plans. God overrules. So this Joseph of Arimathea offering his own tomb is also something that a sovereign God had orchestrated in keeping with his goodwill and good purpose. That the Son of Man, who had no place to lay his head while on earth and no place to call his own after dying, would be provided a place to be buried with the rich was predicted 600 or so years before the event happened. Once again we see the sovereign hand of God involved in every aspect of Jesus' life, including something that we tend to gloss over as his burial. Evil may have appeared to have won the day, but in all reality, the Father was in the background, fully in control, working out His good and glorious purposes. And that truth should once again bring comfort to all of us. Every evil that happens to us, every suffering that we go through, every heartache that we experience, every tear that we shed, every sorrow that we carry is still under the sovereign 
control of a good and gracious God who's working out his glorious purposes. And all wise, all powerful, and yet an all loving God is in control. To you belongs power, to you also belongs unfailing love. Psalm 62, we read earlier. So that is why we can continue to rest in this good hand of God, even in deep, dark times. You may be sitting here, but inside you are suffering. You are carrying a heavy burden. Once again, I want to remind you, a loving father is in control, working even through those tears to accomplish his good and glorious purposes, which involves ultimately, if you are his child, to be made like his son. So rest. Rest in his hands. Find comfort. That's the first truth I want us to see in the burial story of Jesus Christ. Second, the burial of our Lord moved previously fearful and complacent believers to commit themselves more to Jesus. You see, divine sovereignty never cancels out human responsibility. They often appear side by side in the scriptures. Paradoxical. They're there. Father ordained the Son to go to the cross. You crucified. Acts 2.23. Same way here. Joseph of Arimathea took the step, but God the Father had ordained that to happen as well. Even though the Father ordained this, Joseph and Nicodemus still had to act with courage. Right? I mentioned this the first time we heard about Joseph of Arimathea, even though we encounter Nicodemus much earlier in Jesus' ministry, right at the outset of his ministry in Judea. You know why we didn't hear about Joseph previously? John gives the answer. You're in Matthew. Turn to the Gospel of John. I want you to look at verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 38. I referenced verse 39, but this time I want you to see, because scriptures give us why he was a secret disciple. John 19 and verse 38. John's record, Jesus has uh, uh, died, and uh, the burial of Jesus, he's picking up this. He says, later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but notice those next two words, but secretly. Why? Because he feared the Jewish leaders. That's why he was a secret disciple. He was afraid. But now, what changed? The manner in which Jesus suffered and died changed him. You cannot look at Jesus' death, Jesus' suffering, and remain unchanged. He's looking. Remember, he's part of the Sanhedrin. He's through this whole process. He's seeing the false trial. He's seeing the beating. He's seeing the suffering. He's seeing the rejection, the pain of crucifixion. Jesus' cries on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's seeing all that. And in his heart he's saying, for me, you are doing that. I can no longer remain in fear. I can no longer be a secret 
disciple. But even as he was a secret believer, Luke tells us he had not consented to the Sanhedrin's decision and action. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 and 51. But it was more like a, seemed like a half-hearted thing. You know what? I don't think we should do it. But he was in the minority. And he still had fear. Because it's not like today. Today, you know, you upset the religious establishment. No one cares. You can go. But those days, your whole life was tied with the society. It's like today, like an Amish person who cuts off from the faith and becomes a born-again believer. They're cut off from the community because there's a lot of business trading and things like that that goes on. We know people like that, don't we? Right? So for, for Joseph to take this step, it was a big thing. Even Nicodemus, in John, John tells us in John 5, 7 verse 51, even he, earlier when the religious mob was trying to arrest Jesus, he said, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They did try to voice out their objection, but they were in the minority, they couldn't make a big deal. It's like believers sometimes, we're filled with fear, we, we, we take a stand, kind of a very soft stand, but then when we look at the cost, we back off. We say and sing Jesus is worthy. But when there is a price to pay, that's when the question really comes, is he really worthy? The question is not if he's worthy or not. He is, is he worthy for you and for me? Is he worthy in our eyes to give up everything that we are holding on to that comes between Jesus and us? Both of them, as they saw how Jesus suffered and died, they did what they could with what they had. They didn't fear any consequences that would come because there would be consequences. This is a public act. They're going publicly to Pilate. They're publicly doing this. This is not being done in secret. Let me give you a few of those consequences, two of them. Number one, in a few hours, it's going to be Passover. And they're touching a dead body. Touching a dead body makes a person unclean. They cannot participate in the Passover. And these are religious leaders. For them to not participate by touching the corpse of a man that the Sanhedrin just condemned, that's huge. But technically as Jesus' disciples, that Passover meant nothing because the Passover lamb was already crucified. When Christ died, Passover died. That's why his bones were not broken. Because Passover lamb, the bones should not be broken. John makes that reference to us. But they're risking this. Number two, think about this. They are providing a decent burial to the very man their group just condemned. So now that puts a mark on them. We condemned him to die and we wanted his body to be thrown away in that mass grave. You, one of us, trying to give him a decent burial? Not only would that risk their rejection, them being kicked out of the council, but also it puts them under their radar. We killed your leader. You want to follow him? Watch out. We're coming after you. 
they risked everything. They risked everything, but they didn't care. They could no longer live in fear and complacency, but courageously do what they could for him. Since Joseph was rich, he used his resources wisely at a time it was needed. He imparted, he gave away property for Jesus. It shows even the rich can be in the kingdom and will be in the kingdom and are in the kingdom as long as they view their riches as a means and not as an end. That's the key. Joseph had money that money didn't have him. He didn't let his money come between Jesus and him. He didn't let his fear come between Jesus and him. Nicodemus, perhaps seeing Joseph, becomes bold. He joins him. He joins him. And don't forget, verse 56 there. I'm, I'm sorry, verse uh, uh, 61. Back to Matthew, in case you lost your place in Matthew. Don't forget once again, like, like I mentioned last week, the presence of women. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So what are we seeing here? Last week we saw women at the foot of the cross. This week, woman at the tomb. Lord willing, next time, woman at the resurrection. Points to the faithfulness of these dear sisters. Again, that mentioning of Mary Magdalene shows how Jesus takes what the society looks down on as worthless and molds them into people of worth. She loved Jesus so much because she realized how much she was forgiven. I tell you, that's one of the keys to loving Jesus more. The more we realize how sinful we are, the more we will be in awe of his grace and the more we will be moved to love him. And the more we are moved to love him, the more we will surrender to his cause. The more we will smash all those idols that come between our Lord and us. And that's what Jesus' sacrifice should move you and I to do as well. To move from living from fear, from fear of confessing his name openly, from being complacent to giving our all to him. No use constantly claiming Jesus as Lord, Lord with our mouths, yet, and yet by our actions show that money is our God. Love of comfort and the praise of people is what matters the most for us. We cannot live such dual lives. His death should move us not to love our lives, but to give our all to Him. What do we prioritize the most when it comes to our daily lives? Jesus' interests or ours? What do we constantly dream about? His work, His glory prospering or our interests being furthered. I tell you with a sincere heart, it is a sin to live a life that is focused on self-interest. It is a sin. It's a slap in the face of Jesus to call him Lord, Lord and live like that. How different are we from those soldiers? They also mocked him. You're the Messiah. They put a crown of thorns on him. They, they bowed their knee. They put a reed in his hand. It was false mockery. Are we guilty of doing the same thing? Calling him Lord, Lord. But then our hearts are full of our own idols. 
We cannot dream of not giving up our idols. We use God for our benefits, for our interests. And we say, no God, this is for your glory. No, it is for self-glory. And that is sin. Narrow indeed is the way that leads to eternal life. And only a few, only a few, the Bible says, find it. In a day where people are turning their backs on Jesus left and right, we need to keep the suffering of our Lord in front of our face constantly. We need to keep reading again and again the suffering our Lord went through. We need to keep hearing that heart-wrenching cry of His, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Repeatedly ringing into our ears. We need to keep seeing that forehead crushed by those thorns and bleeding. Those very hands that made us yielding to those nails. And those very feet that has the power to subject all things under it, yielding to that nail wounded, bruised and bleeding crying out for you and for me. We must keep seeing that only then we will be able to love him more. Only then we will be moved to give up our interests and to live for him. So that's the second truth I want you to see in this passage. Not only did the burial of Christ fulfill an Old Testament prophecy showing God was sovereign over the greatest evil that ever happened, which comforts you and me, that our God is in control even when we go through evil, but also this moved and should move complacent and fearful believers to live a life of no fear, no shame, not live arrogantly, because some people equate not living in fear as living in arrogance. The Christian arrogance is nauseating. That's not what we're advocating here. It's a heart that is filled with humility, yet willing to give up everything for Jesus. Dethrones self and constantly rethrones him as Lord, as the number one in our lives. The third and final truth, sad one, is this. Our Lord's burial moved those who were settled in the rejection of him to continue in that sinful path. How often it's been said, and I've said it repeatedly as well, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same death of Christ that moved fearful hearts to live for him even more deliberately continued to harden hearts that were set on rejecting him. Look at verses 62 through 66. The next day, the one after preparation day, that's a Sabbath day, Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Verse 63, Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Stop right there. It's ironic that Jesus' enemies remembered him talking about his resurrection. Isn't it? They didn't believe in it. But they remembered it. His disciples, who should have remembered it, forgot it and were living in fear and doubt. Sad sometimes when unbelievers know more about the Bible than believers. Isn't it? 
they anticipate even the possibility obviously they're not looking at him rising but the disciples would take it away but something to do with him saying 3 days later triggered them to do their evil even though it was evil notice the request in verse 64 so give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead this last deception meaning the lie about jesus rising from the dead will be worse than the first meaning the lie about jesus being the messiah this would be this would top that so pilate agreed to the request take a guard he says in verse 65 go make the tomb as secure as you know how so they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard there would be usually outside the grave it would be a little slope going down on the slope they would have this big kind of a rock to seal the tomb the rock seals so animals cannot get in and neither can grave robbers go in and there's no way one person can move that rock so it's, it's a big one so they're sealing it and the guards are also posted out there but notice their wicked heart what is the day the day is sabbath these fastidious jews new sabbath was a day of rest meditating on god's good works what are they doing they're plotting further evil right from the get go if you notice on the sabbath day they always planned to kill jesus and even now they wanting to make sure he's a fraud that nothing should hinder their plans so that's what they do and in they hated jesus so much notice how they describe him verse 63 that deceiver the darkness when he was on the cross the earthquake the splitting of the rocks the temple curtain being torn from top to bottom the centurion and the soldiers crying out the son of god none of that moved their hearts just imagine that not one bit no dent these are hearts that are settled in their rejection of jesus they heard jesus preach again and again on repentance and the horrors of hell they saw him raise the dead heal the sick they saw everything that they could possibly see they now put themselves in a position where it was impossible for them to repent hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 we've seen everything there's no more to be seen and it's our verdict he's a deceiver i don't know if you fall in that camp i hope not perhaps you've heard the gospel again and again if you've been coming here you hear the gospel every sunday you hear it directly through the preaching and or through the communion you explain you hear it yet you're still afraid or you're still doubting whatever is the case to come to jesus you're settled in your rejection but don't let it go farther than today Bible says today if you hear his voice don't harden your hearts please don't harden your hearts 
it will be too late tomorrow. In fact, it will be too late later today. One day, the Holy Spirit will stop giving you even that uneasiness, what the Bible calls as conviction. He will stop. And if the Holy Spirit stops his convicting work, all is doomed. All is doomed. You never know when he will stop. So, don't delay. See this Jesus. Read Matthew 26 and 27. Again. And again. And again. Read this Jesus. What he did for you. Offering you forgiveness. Offering you new life. Let his love move your hearts to come to him in humility. Doesn't matter how much you have sinned. Doesn't matter how much you have messed up. Come to him. He will pick you up as you are. Allow him to change you. Turn from your sins and accept the forgiveness he offers to you. Put your faith in him. Surrender your life to him before it's too late. The door is open. Still open. Don't know for how long though. While it is open, enter it before it is shut once for all. And you bang on the door, say, please open, please open. From inside he will say, it's too late. Once and for all your future is doomed forever. Please don't find yourself in that situation. Come, receive life. Join with the rest of us in giving up our all for this wonderful, magnificent, glorious Savior. It's worth it to suffer for him. Every tear you shed, he is not forgotten. He knows. He knows what it truly means to be fors forsook. He was forsaken so that you and I will never ever truly be forsaken in the ultimate sense. We may feel forsaken. Don't go by your feelings. By faith, believe. His promise, I will be with you no matter what. Never leave you, never forsake you. Father, with that assurance, we submit this message into your hands. Do as you will through your spirit in every heart that is present here. For your son's name I pray. Amen.